Welcome to the National Working Waterfront Podcast, a collaboration between the National Working Waterfront Network and the American Shoreline Podcast Network, where I invite guests to chat with me about topics related to the working waterfront, an important driver of the blue economy and development along our waterfronts. I am your host, Ashley Bennis, a resilience planner and acting vice chair of the National Working Waterfront Network. For this episode, we are celebrating Seafood Month, which was October, and I believe this may come out on the last day of October, but great news for everyone. You get to enjoy seafood anytime, any time of the year. Our guests today either work in or adjacent to the U.S. fishery industry. They are joining me to discuss their work and how consumers can support sustainable U.S. seafood and local jobs. NOAA Fisheries is responsible for the stewardship of the nation's ocean resources and their habitat. And in 2023, they released their first ever national seafood strategy, underscoring NOAA's strong commitment to building resilience in the seafood sector. Now their vision is to ensure that U.S. seafood continues to be produced sustainably. The U.S. seafood sector contributes to the nation's climate ready food production and to meeting critical domestic nutritional needs. That U.S. seafood production increases to support jobs, the economy, and the competitiveness of the U.S. seafood sector. That supply chains and infrastructure are modernized with more value-added activity in the United States. And that opportunities are expanded for a diverse and growing seafood workforce. Now they plan to achieve this by focusing on four goals maintain or increase sustainable U.S. wild capture production, increase sustainable U.S. aquaculture production, foster access to domestic and global markets for the U.S. seafood industry, and strengthen the entire U.S. seafood sector. Public input was critical for this process, and my first guest is joining us from the Gulf of Mexico Reef Fish Shareholders Alliance a fisherman organization that is run by fishermen for fishermen. And she came to talk about some feedback the Shareholder Alliance provided in response to early drafts of the seafood strategy. She discusses the importance of representation in policy and decision-making so that they best support workers in the industry. Hi, Ashford. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Ashley. Thank you for having me. So, Ashford... If you could start by please giving us a little bit of your background and what your current role is within the U.S. fishery industry. Um, yeah, gladly. So um, my name is Ashford Rosenberg, and I am the currently the policy director for the Gulf of Mexico Reef Fish Shareholders Alliance. We are the largest organization of commercial grouper, snapper, and reef fish fishermen in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and we work to ensure our fisheries are sustainably managed and sustainably harvested so that, you know, we can continue to make a living on the water. Um, I came by this industry a little bit in a weird way. Um, I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, so I'm an inland girl, um, but always had a love for the ocean and marine conservation. So um, I did my undergraduate at Eckerd College in St. Pete, Florida, um, did my graduate work in um, back in Tennessee, actually, at the University of Tennessee, University of Tennessee um, Chattanooga, and worked at the Tennessee Aquarium there for a little while on sustainable seafood education. So it was kind of my first, like, toe in the sustainable seafood world. 
Um, and then from there, I went to New Orleans and worked for the Audubon Aquarium of the Americas there and their sustainable seafood program, um, which is called Gulf United for Lasting Fisheries. And that was when I really got to know the commercial seafood industry in the Gulf of Mexico. I spent two years traveling and interviewing commercial fishermen from Brownsville, Texas to Key West, um, primarily in the shrimp industry, some in the crab, a little bit of oyster and um, tuna. So um, that was like my real like introduction by fire, like going to communities and just like getting, go like walking the docks and getting to know people. And it was incredibly enlightening and rewarding. Um, and then about five years ago, made the jump from, you know, predominantly shrimp, crab, oyster, and tuna into the grouper snapper reef fish side of things. Wow. Yeah. A lot of roundabout way to kind of get to the coast. I'm similar. Like I grew up inland and and now that I'm on a coast, I'm never leaving. I don't think <laughs> so. Um, yeah. I unfortunately had to leave. I, I, I still am very lucky that I, um, work for the Sheriff's Alliance, but I'm physically located in Nashville. I moved back home um, when the family was getting bigger. So, But thanks to remote work world, I can still do what I do and work with my fishermen, which is awesome. Yeah, some benefits there. So um, we, to, this month um, has been Seafood Month. Uh, you uh, So the industry kind of putting out there, like supporting seafood, let's, let's get our, um, our seafood on. And to start, we wanted to kind of dive into the strategy that Noah has put out recently. But briefly, what are some obstacles that commercial fishermen are facing today? Yeah, uh, to be frank, there are a lot. Uh, commercial fishing is not uh, an easy profession to get into or to stay in. It's it's a lot of hard work, and it's um, there's a lot of regulations to navigate. You have to understand, you know, the different rules that are in place and why. And, you know, be knowledgeable in business plans and finance. So it's, it's, it's a lot to, to get in and stay in. I would say from, you know, a, a broader view, you know, the biggest challenges are, um, and I'll, I can get into this more later, but, you know, an, an, un, an unfriendly regulatory body through the Gulf Council. Um, there's not a lot of commercial representation on that body. So we've seen some decisions being made that are anti-conservation and anti-commercial by the Gulf Council. Um, imports are a big one, um, especially like in the shrimp industry, um, that industry really is getting hit hard with, um, incoming imports, uh, from overseas. And then I think a little bit of just, you know, perception, I think, you know, it's, there's a perception that commercial fishing is kind of the wild west and, and fishermen, all they want to do is go out and catch as much as they can, as fast as they can, um, and make as much money as they can. And obviously while they need to make a good living, I have found that to be the exact opposite. Commercial fishermen are often the like front line of conservation and are the ones that kind of come up and say, hey, we're seeing a problem. We need to do something about it. Um, it's going to hurt my bottom line, but it's going to be good for the fishery in the long term. So that's kind of, I guess, what I would say the kind of the three biggest challenges I've seen. Yeah, that's got to come out of, you know, understanding that this isn't this isn't a unlimited resource. I mean, it can be when managed well, but yeah, if they were to act that way, then they wouldn't have a, a job to go to eventually. So, but in light of all that, how does the, um, seafood strategy proposed by NOAA, I understand that, uh, that you guys were involved in, you know, providing some comments back and stuff. So how would that seafood strategy, um, in your point of view, help to maybe address some of those issues? You know, one is, you know, helping, 
you know, increase like, the like, value of the seafood industry, not just in dollars, but in, like I said, in perception. I think, you know, if, if people understand the value of commercial fisheries and commercial fishing um, you know, as a consumer, we hope that that leads them to make, you know, a bit more informed decisions at the grocery store or at the restaurant. Um, in general, Americans are pretty terrified of cooking their own seafood. So we, restaurants are really kind of where they go to do that. Um, and so if, if Noah can execute these goals in the strategy, um, that'll help, you know, our fishermen move their product into, into businesses and onto people's plates. So that's kind of what we hope to see out of it. And then obviously with, you know, climate change and, and increasing hurricanes, you know, our fishing communities are getting hammered, you know, with pretty strong storms now. And so if there's woven in how to help these businesses be more resilient in light of these more frequent and stronger storms, that would be huge. Um, because, you know, we've seen communities have to rebuild in the last, you know, two to five years. And, you know, in the case of, you know, Hurricane Ian down in Fort Myers, I mean, that took out a big swath of the fishing industry, um, as did Hurricane Michael and uh, Hurricane Ida, you know, in the years before that. So if we can kind of get consumers to understand the value of, of supporting commercial fishing and their domestic seafood and, and give fishermen the tools to weather, literally weather these storms, um, that would be very helpful. And would you... Have would you mind like sharing some of that feedback? Like once you got an initial draft of those those seafood strategy, what kind of feedback uh, did you guys provide? We were generally supportive. I mean, like I said, it would it would help. You know, if if they're able to achieve what they set out to achieve, it would be really helpful to the industry. Our biggest comment on the strategy specifically um, was this issue of of balance on the Gulf Council. We felt like. Um, it's hard to increase productivity of fisheries and commercial fishing in the Gulf of Mexico if you don't have adequate representation on the regulatory body making those decisions. So at the time when the seafood strategy was out for public comment, um, and just for like a little bit of background, the, the Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management Council is a 17-member body that makes management recommendations to NOAA um, for what, how, you know, how many fish we should catch in certain fisheries, what season should be, bag limits, you know, all those kinds of things. <clears throat> and at the time, when we put in public comment, of the 17 members, there was one that had experience in commercial fisheries in federal waters out of 17. Um, and considering the economic impacts and, you know, in cultural importance of commercial fishing, one out of 17 is, is inadequate. Um, and so we kind of focused on that you know, saying that there needs to be better balance and that we need to have more people who make a living on the water on that body because they understand um, the intricacies of all that. It's gotten a little bit better since then. There are now two out of 17 who make a living on the water. Um, so incrementally better, but not not where it needs to be. Well, that's, uh, no, that's really helpful. And I appreciate that, that insight um, to kind of help give our audience, you know, a little more background in just the seafood industry in general. Um, can you speak to, you know, where does most of our seafood in the U.S. come from? Anywhere but the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> most of the seafood that we eat here comes from um, a myriad of other countries. Um, we import, and the numbers move, but and it depends on species, but overall we import approximately 90% of the seafood that we consume in the U.S. And how do you think the consumer can better support the U.S. fishing industry? I guess that would just be looking at labels and buying more local. Huh? Yeah, label labeling is a big issue or a big, um, a big 
easy um, first step. Um, even at a restaurant, you know, the restaurants have to have the labels on the seafood they get. So, you know, my I always joke that people hate eating out at restaurants with me because I will I will ask um, I will grill a waiter or waitress about where the seafood I'm eating is coming from. But you know, if you if they don't have a customer that does that, there's no incentive for the restaurant to be conscious about that. So um, it's one of those kind of like bottom up approaches of accountability in, in seafood purchasing. So, um, but yes, in the grocery store, you know, there's country of origin labeling laws. They have to have a label on there that says where it was, where it's from. Um, and just, you know, being as, as educated as you can and, you know, inland, it's obviously a little harder inland cause you're not near a coast, but, um, there's a good bit of Gulf seafood that comes inland and goes to inland places. So it's, it's possible to find. And uh, Asher and I know each other because we have a we have a shared contact. Um, I had worked with Laura, and and you knew Laura. And I don't think it was until I met her that I even knew anything about buying local, supporting local, and all of this stuff. So um, that's certainly my excuse. I didn't seek it out. So really, I think maybe hopefully this Noah strategy can be more of a. Um, visual and more something out there that people can can recognize and start to think about because how does our practices and how we manage and and um collect and put out for commercial use our seafood compare to you know pos- imported seafood and i know that's a very broad question because every country you know manages in different ways but if there's some big ideas that you can kind of share as to how our um, different industries compare um, that would pay, possibly be helpful sure and, and you hit the nail on the head it, it does vary by country and so um, but I would say broadly you know the US is consistently recognized as a leader in fisheries management we do you know, we, we may get frustrated with the management process sometimes, but overall, the U.S. does it pretty well. And we've rebuilt um, a lot of stocks in, in the U.S. because of that. Um, and I actually pulled some numbers for this um, because I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, because of the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act, which is <clears throat> the legislation that really kind of set up the blueprint for how we manage our fisheries and, you know, putting science first and trying to rely on, on good science to do that. Um, there have been close to 50 stocks rebuilt since 2000, um, and that's of their last report uh, in 2002. And uh, seven, only 7% of our managed stocks are undergoing overfishing, and only 19% are overfished. So, you know, it's a pretty good track record. And so by, by buying U.S. seafood and supporting the U.S. seafood industry and U.S. commercial fishermen, um, you are supporting some pretty rigorous management measures as opposed to other countries where it's may not be as rigorous. And on your website, there was a discussion about reallocation of quotas. Um, I have covered this in previous episodes where you talked about, you know, climate change and and the oceans heating up has been having an effect on where habitats are and how they align and how fishermen can meet their quotas. Um, What effect could this, you know, the reallocation of quotas have on fishermen's ability to be profitable and continue to participate in the industry? That's a great question. And, you know, just to be frank, you know, it directly takes livelihood away from commercial fishermen. You know, reallocation in the Gulf is not so much based on climate, like some of the arguments are being made in other areas. Um, 
climate change in fishers in the Gulf looks different than, you know, say Alaska or the East Coast where you're seeing stock um, regimes and stock habitat shift, right? We're seeing different species in places we hadn't seen them before. Some of that is happening in the Gulf a little bit, but to a lesser scale. And because of the Gulf's general geography, you know, climate impact on fisheries is more, at least to date from what we've seen, you know, in the form of of hurricanes and freshwater inflows from the Mississippi River and that kind of thing. So, you know, reallocation in the Gulf right now is purely from the commercial sector to the recreational sector because we have a lot of recreational and private angler fishermen in the Gulf. It's it's a very popular thing to do in the Gulf and it's and it's an important part of the economy. Um, but in you know, you are taking livelihood away from one group for the pleasure of another and we just one that find that unfair and you know in the case of some stocks noah's own analyses have shown that reallocating from the commercial sector to the recreational sector actually increases overall bycatch and discards yeah not ideal not what they're looking for no i appreciate that that insight um and so kind of finally as we're as uh, kind of leaving our audience with with some lasting thoughts and stuff as they hopefully go out. I know seafood month is probably over by the time this, uh, this episode airs, but that doesn't mean that it's done for seafood. So hopefully everyone's going to go out, start seeking their own local seafood, working, you know, asking their, not harassing, of course, but asking their waitresses, you know, where it's coming from. So what are some misconceptions about the seafood industry in the U.S.? Um, we've had all these documentaries and different articles come out about how U.S. seafood and the industry is collapsing all these fisheries and stuff. What are some misconceptions that you would like to dispel? I think the biggest one is is that the collapse of stocks is on the commercial fishermen's back because in a lot of cases it's not, um, you know, here in the Gulf discards, recreational discards are a big driver of fishing mortality. So, um, you know, like I said, a lot of time it's the commercial fishermen who are coming up to the podium, at least in the Gulf saying, Hey, there's a problem. You know, I can count three times in the last two years where groups of commercial fishermen have gotten up at Gulf council meetings and said, Hey, you need to make the quotas lower because the fish aren't there. And if we keep fishing at these levels, they're not going to be there for much longer. Um, so I think that's the biggest myth of dispel is it's not, you know, commercial fishermen aren't, aren't just there for themselves. They truly are there for the health of the resource because they rely on it. And uh, as far as the future, thinking ahead, what are some infrastructure investments, some policy investments that you would like to see in the coming decades to help make sure that this industry continues to thrive? I think a big one is investment in the next generation of commercial fishermen. Um, You know, we've seen some legislation through the Young Fishermen's Development Act, which is a grant program set up to um, support training programs for the next generation of commercial fishing. Um, It's pretty limited and pretty competitive. This was the first year that it was um, in existence. And, you know, it was only, they could only afford to award two two grants out of that. Um, but finding ways to invest in those training programs, because um, that way you get an influx of, of new entrants or ne- we call them next generation or replacement entrants that are knowledgeable about commercial fishing. Like I said before, it's so much comp- more complicated than it used to be. Um, you know, before you might be able to just kind of go start small, you know, 
by some by a hook and a pole and kind of work your way up and that's just not not the reality anymore there's a lot more to it and so if we can invest in those young women and men who are interested and passionate and want to want to be in the industry but may not know what the first step is having an investment in, in helping organizations like ours execute training programs um would be huge um i think that's one one big thing and then um i know with uh, some of the infrastructure money that's come down, there is certainly the focus on just making sure the infrastructure is there. Because I know, um, like I said, discussions with, with Laura and stuff that um, infrastructure along the coast is at risk of sea level rise, of course, but there's just so much risk of development pressures and stuff. So without that infrastructure, I mean, it's going to be really hard for them to do their job, I would imagine. Yeah, and it's it's one of those frustrating kind of like chicken and egg things too, right? Like in coastal communities where they may have already lo- lost the infrastructure, but the stocks are healthy, you know, do you put the infrastructure in first and then hope that that draws the industry back or do you have to have the industry there first, but then they can't get a foothold when they don't have the infrastructure they need? Um, and I totally agree that we need it. You know, there's some communities that don't even have ice anymore and they have to go, you know, they have to travel to even load up their boats with ice before they can even go out fishing. And that's that in of itself is a hurdle. Um, so yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Minor things that it's just kind of, you don't think about, especially if you're not in the industry. Um, well, this has been very insightful. I really appreciate that you joining us Ashford. And um, if our audience noticed, um, Ashford has a little future fisherman um, who joined us as well to provide some some background. Um, so thank you both for joining us. And um, is there any other lasting thoughts or things that you would like to share to make sure that people have in mind as they go seek out seafood? We like to say every month is National Seafood Month. So, you know, don't celebrate seafood every October. And every chance you get, look at a label, you know, eat American seafood as much and as often as you can. Great thought. You're supporting local, local industry, keeping everything local. That's what we're all about. Uh, Ashford, thank you again. And now my conversation with my next guest, a Texan native, shrimper, and oyster farmer, David Aparicio. David, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how's it going? Great to be here. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks so much for taking some time to speak with us. Um, would you please introduce yourself and just give us a little background of um, your history in the fishing industry? Uh, yes, Ashley. My name is David Aparicio, and I am from Palacios, Texas. Um, I'm 27 years old, and I've been in the fishing industry my entire life. You know, my father has a shrimping industry, so I grew up into that and you know worked on the boats worked at the dock uh did the whole nine yards with that and then later on last year i started an oyster farm and so i'm currently in two different tiers of the seafood industry so you can say seafood is definitely the biggest part of my life yeah it's like coursing through your blood for sure um yes so as you know someone who's very active and on the water and stuff what are some of the major challenges that you're facing um, with the seafood industry as it relates to either access or infrastructure or even climate change, if that's relevant? 
Um, I'd say like the biggest challenges is definitely the weather. You know, as a fisherman in the Gulf, you definitely see beautiful, um, wonderful days on the water. And then you also see the ugly side of things, you know, when it gets really rough and you see sky and ocean for days on end. And the same thing with oyster farming. I mean, you have just the days that are just beautiful and great to be on the water. And then you have the days that aren't so much, but it's still a beautiful thing to see. And so growing up doing this has allowed me to see a perspective of the seafood industry, not only to um, become a better fisherman, but also to to help market our product because I know what it's like to go out there and do these things so you can have you add value to your product when you know where it comes from. I think that's a big important thing when it comes to seafood is knowing what your sources and you know seeing that growing up really puts into perspective of how important and how great our seafood industry is and the beauty of our seafood industry. I think I'm um, in the majority here as far as with our audience is that we are not too familiar or aware of where our seafood comes from and what that process is. Once you go out and you catch it and you bring it back in, um, what is the process that you go through if you kind of want to Give us some insight into that. Okay. So on the shrimp side of things, you know, as a producer, um, we spend the majority of our time um, getting ready for seasons, you know, prepping, getting ready to catch shrimp. So um, we spend, you know, months on the water. Not me in particularly. You know, I did my time out there and I don't do so as much. But when the guys leave, you know, our sources are anywhere from Brownsville, Texas, from to Key West, Florida. So the boats travel across the Gulf. And those areas are very good fishing areas, depending on what part of the year we're in. So uh, we follow the shrimp. You know, wherever the shrimp are, we try to stay behind them and we get there. Now, going to the oyster side of things... You know, it's a very one-spot location. You just tend to your oysters. You make sure they're growing up in a happy environment. Sometimes it's not so happy because of Mother Nature, but um, we're stewards of the sea. You know, we're always working on the water, um, cleaning it up, you know, filtration with oysters and, you know, safe practices with shrimp. So it's a very uh, unique lifestyle, I will say. But it's definitely one of the most interesting lifestyles because you never know what's going to be thrown at you. You know, you could have um, horrible weather. You can have, you know, you can lose your rigs out in the Gulf. And, you know, working in the Bay and the Gulf really gives you some insight of how good we have it. Because in the Gulf, it's very, very unpredictable and rough. And in the Bay, it's the same thing, but at a smaller scale. So uh, knowing the two base systems, I mean, the base systems in the Gulf is very, very helpful. You know, you got to have 
um, you got to know what you're doing out there. You know, you got to keep everybody safe. You know, you don't want to get nobody hurt. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's a, a hard way of living, but you know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I think that's a sentiment that I've definitely heard from other anglers and fishermen as well. So once you get, you know, once fishermen get their catch back to the shore, um, what happens next as far as how to get it from the shore to plate? Okay, awesome. Um, either one, shrimp, oysters in the industry I'm in in particular, we bring the product to the dock. We unload the product. And we are producers, so we send the product on to a packer, and then that packer sizes the shrimp up, um, and specifically ours is in New Orleans. So they get trucked to New Orleans, they size the shrimp up, and then uh, they get it ready for the market. And same so in oysters. You know, we bring the oysters back in, and we um, clean the oysters off, make sure they're alive and healthy, and then we cool them off uh, in according to uh, the Texas State Health Department's compliance. And then we sell straight to distributors who will then turn around and sell them to the city markets. So we produce lots of seafood and we don't have a market that goes straight to the restaurant. So a middleman is kind of an important role because that person can focus on packing the shrimp and, and they all do very safe practices. They're great guys. Uh, you know, they pack the shrimp or the oysters and then they hold on to it and then they sell it to the market at, at a smaller volume and we sell to multiple distributors. So during the pandemic, when everything was changing and going crazy and stuff, um, were there some significant changes that you went through in that process and and who you were distributing to for the most part you know the buyers and um so i wasn't oystering at the time oyster farming sorry um we were just doing shrimping and i remember when covid hit we were shrimping in florida things got scary you know you didn't know if anybody was going to buy anymore because a lot of the restaurants were closing down because you know due to the six feet uh, distance. And so it, it did get scary. However, you know, people still need to eat seafood. You know, people still need, I mean, people love seafood, so they still want it. And, you know, the market was still there. It might've shifted, but, you know, there was still a market and we were able to unload our product. And, but the thing that was kind of a blessing and a curse was, Nobody was driving on the roads as much, so fuel went down. So that kind of helped us out in a way to better our margins because I remember fuel dropped down to like under a dollar for uh, red dye diesel. And, you know, it was it was a good thing that that happened. But, you know, of course, w giving what was going on to the world, it was horrible. So it, it got scary because, you, you know, like I said, you didn't know where your market was going. But I mean, luckily, most of the buyers were able to pull something off and still get the shrimp into the American public hands. And, you know, they were still able to enjoy the seafood. Yeah, that's, you know, those silver lining things. But um, were there strategies that you had to implement through COVID that 
you are still using today where there's like new lessons learned and new strategies that you adjust it to that you still use? Um, for the most part, you know, when COVID happened, you know, as a shrimper, you go shrimping and you're about as, uh, you know, isolated from the world as you can be. You're out at sea, you're with two other guys. And um, so nothing really changed per se in like our practices. Everything pretty much stayed the same. But it was whenever you brought the seafood back, um, you know, it was harder to find drivers. You know, less people were driving on the road. Truckers were uh, a commodity and there still are a commodity today. Um, you know, things like that, like getting product from point A to point B became more of a challenge. Uh, but we were able to successfully do that and keep going and keep pushing through, you know, the pandemic. This episode is timely right now because October is Seafood Month, and we wanted to highlight how important this industry is in the U.S. and also how different it is compared to other fisheries. Um, I know in the U.S. we get our seafood from a lot of different sources, and I was wondering if you could speak about what specific strategies and process that you use in your work that make sure that the seafood that people are getting is sustainable and high quality? Yes. You know, you know, we do a great job. You know, we have great crews. They go and they produce, you know, whether it be shrimp or oysters, um, you know, they do a very good job of, you know, safe practices and, they follow all the rules and regulations put in by the Coast Guard, TPWD. So it's very sustainable on both tiers of the uh, businesses, you know, whether it be shrimping or oysters. Um, it's uh, very important to know where your seafood comes from because a lot of other regions don't practice and or they don't have to practice the same methods that we do. So there tends to be more... Um, added chemical, bacterial, um, bacteria in the seafood. And I think, the, you know, the FDA and the Texas Health Department, they all do a very good job of, like, keeping the seafood fresh and safe to eat. And, you know, they keep us, pretty much keep us in check to make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to do as producers to pr- produce very high-quality uh, seafood, whether it be, you know, shrimp, oysters, you know, we produce a little bit of squid here and there, you know, some fish as well. And, you know, it all comes down to uh, quality fishing, having good people on your cruise. And, you know, you got to take care of your product. If you don't take care of your product, well, then it'll go bad on you when you're out at sea. So good practices, um, you know, fishing in the right areas, And sustainability is definitely things that we do practice. You know, when we're shrimping out at at sea, if we pick up trash, we leave it on the boat. And when we bring it back in, we we dispose of it, you know, on land instead of just throwing it back in the water. So I think, you know, doing things like that is, you know, not a big difference, but it is still a difference that helps out with, you know, whatever climate change, you know, pollution, uh, different things like that. 
Yeah. And, uh, and also making sure that, you know, if pe when people are buying U.S. seafood, they know that they're contributing to, you know, making it sustainable. They know that the product that they're buying is trustworthy. So all of that exactly. adds to it. So that's wonderful. Um, and another thing to kind of, no I'm problem. sorry, Go ahead. another thing to kind of throw, uh, throw on to that is when you know where your seafood comes from, and it comes from the U.S., you know, whether it's farm-raised shrimp in the U.S. or domestic-caught shrimp in the U.S. or most oysters, they tend to only allow the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, um, you know, into the United States for consumption. But you look at areas where, like in Southeast Asia, they – and, you know, I'm not saying anything bad about, you know, their practices or, you know, the people, but they don't – pay their employees, you know, they feed the, their uh, shrimp or fish, whatever they're growing, they feed them whatever feces versus like the practices here, you know, the farmers, for example, uh, that are fish farmers or anything, you know, they have to provide certain proteins and certain feed that is sustainably healthy for the fish or, you know, shrimp or crawfish or anything to uh, successfully grow that animal and not cause that animal to have whatever it's eating because any seafood, it is what it eats. You know, you look at brown shrimp, they eat on mud bottom. Well, they're brown in color. You look at white shrimp, they eat on sand bottom. They're, you know, they're white in color. Pink shrimp in Florida, they eat on coral bottom, you know, so they have a pinkish color. So seafood is what it eats. So I think America has done a very fantastic job of creating a safe practice for whether it be farm raised or domestic caught. And I think we're just way ahead of the rest of the world when it comes to that. So one of the things that I was discussing with my previous guest is that NOAA released their seafood strategy recently um, in time for seafood month. And the strategy outlines the goals and actions that they would like to take to support the industry. It's kind of, you know, like a, like a wish list. Is this something that you are aware of, or is this something that was on your radar when it was released? It wasn't on my radar. I mean, I have, you know, seen things that Noah has put out, but I have yet to see what they had put out. That's helpful. Um, it's just helpful to know because, um, it's always, I'm always curious when they put out these guides, like how much awareness are they trying to spread or how far does it go? But in reference to this, um, are there things that you can think about? Like if you were looking for more support in the future from NOAA or from, you know, Congress or something like, are there specific things that you can think of off the top of your head that would you would like to see in the future things that they could invest in or ways that they could really help um, fishermen in the industry? Um, I think the biggest support that any government agency can give a commercial fisherman or um, uh, aquaculture um, farmer is, is, is marketing. You know, I think the more you get the word out there, the more, People know about what's going on, how seafood's taken care of, how it's processed, and, you know, the safeness of our seafood versus, you know, 
other places of the world, if you use that as a marketing point and educate the people on where their seafood's coming from, whether, and it could be anything, you know, beef, pork, chicken, um, you know, you highlight the safe practices that the government puts us, puts in place to make seafood more sustainable and, you know, easier for the people to eat because it, it's, you know, less antibiotics, less things like that. I think marketing, though, is very, very important. It needs to be highlighted, especially in the shrimp industry. You know, I know we don't produce as much as, you know, Southeast Asia and these other countries, and we don't have the capability of producing uh, what they're able to produce. So, like, they are still necessary, but the things that kind of make it difficult is they sell a low quality, low price product versus us. We sell a high quality, higher price product. And, um, moving forward, I would like to see the government support the shrimping industry more. And they do a good job with the oyster farming. I will say that all the government agencies, when I've started oyster farming, have done a fantastic job. But however, I think it's lacking a little more so on the shrimping side. You know, if we got more support from the government, and if it was just as simple as marketing, getting people educated on how safe and how great our product is in the shrimping industry, I think it would help the shrimpers, you know, make more sales, help the packers make more sales, and help the volume go up. But as the shrimping community is going forward, less and less people are getting into it. It's kind of something that you're born into and you fall in love with it and you kind of take the torch from your dad and, and go forward with it like me and my brothers have done and are, are doing. You know, my dad's still very much involved, but um, the the biggest key I would like to see in the shrimping industry is a little bit more help from the government, you know, marketing our product, getting the awareness out there that, you know, Gulf shrimp is pretty much the Rolex of seafood or shrimp. Yeah. I, uh, I'm originally from, from Michigan. So a lot of whitefish and stuff up there, but, um, I had never been, exposed to the shrimping industry and and I've got some connections in that industry and I'm learning so much and I know like you said that the Gulf of Mexico is limited in what they can catch and put out but because of that it's so very important to check the labor labels and make sure that you're getting shrimp from either the Gulf of Mexico or just somewhere in the US. Yes. And you know like another thing that would also help is um a lot of these other countries flood their product in here and you know, it, it hurts the American fishermen because the cost that it takes to produce seafood isn't cheap. You know, you have fuel crew stuff breaks down all the time. You know, it's a never ending job. Just when you think you're done, you have your boat ready, something breaks. And that just, that just comes with the, with, in, with the game. And I think that, um, by other countries flooding in shrimp and they don't have to follow the same uh, rules and regulations that we do with the Uf uh, FDA and, you know, the health departments and stuff. Um, it makes it easier for them to produce a product cheaper 
And another thing too is, you know, something I really like to label is, you know, we pay our guys good. You know, they have to make a living. But in some of these other countries, they just don't pay their employees nothing. So whenever you take labor out of the cost, you know, it definitely affects the price. So they are able to produce it cheaper because they can pay somebody, you know, $20 a day versus somebody like us. We're paying in the thousands a day to be out there. Wow, that's impressive. And I really appreciate you highlighting that. And um, very much appreciate you joining us. And this has been very insightful because I don't think I've um, had anyone who actually worked on the water on the podcast yet. So this has been very insightful. Um, before we uh, wrap up and I let you go, um, I was wondering if there's any like last minute, like misconceptions of the seafood industry or any just last minute impressions that you want to impart on our audience. Um, I would just say, you know, there's, there's probably some misconceptions that fishermen aren't the best for the environment. But, you know, until somebody goes out there, you know, we've had uh, uh, observers go out on our boats and whenever they come back, they're very impressed with how we practice handling our seafood and, you know, what we do out there. And um, it does have a bad rap at sometimes, but I think it takes some insight and seeing what we're actually doing out in the Gulf or, you know, out here in the Bay with the farm to uh, to really understand it you know it, it takes it takes some uh, kind of like some f uh, to be there in person to really embrace what's going on and I think that's uh, very important too yeah that's that's great and I always thought that people thinking fishermen were bad for the environment was kind of silly just I mean for many reasons but for really the biggest reason is if you guys, overfish or you overdo it, then you don't have a job anymore. So, you know, obviously there's, there's some protection in you, I'm sure, you know, some, some, um, desire in you to, to protect what you guys have. It, yeah, you're a hundred percent correct. So like, I like to say, you know, we're stewards of the sea. If we don't protect our resource and where we're fishing, well, then we're going to be out of a job. So I think it's very important that, you know, people do understand that fishermen uh, do what they can to protect the environment and protect the resources because, like you highlighted, you know, without, without shrimp or, you know, fish, if you overfish or you over uh, shrimp, you know, you're not going to have a product. So safe practices and, you know, like I said, as the fleets get smaller, uh, the product gets more abundant. Um. And just last night, as far as uh, the oysters that you're producing and stuff is, do you have it under a specific label or are you just kind of sending out there? I would love to direct our audience to, to support <laughs> if possible. Oh, yes. So, you know, farming in Texas, farming oysters and specifically in Texas is fairly new. So I'm one of the first people, you know, pioneering this and, you know, there's some, uh, Hannah Kaplan out of Galveston, Brad Lomax out of uh, uh, Copano Bay. And, you know, they're in front of me in this too. So they've done a very good job. But uh, I, me and specifically, I'm here in Matagorda Bay. And I mark my product as Matagorda Pearls. DJ's Oyster Company is my, um, my company name. And, you know, I think the more the word gets out there that we do have an, um, another way 
to put oysters on a, a platter. It, you know, the more way that we can put seafood on people's plates in a safe practice, the better. You know, we can um, get get to where we need to go faster as people get educated on this subject. You know, I know it's fairly new. You know, it's kind of uh, harder to get things going. But so far, you know, all the agencies have done a great job helping us. And, you know, going and talk to restaurants have done a good job. So, you know, educating your chefs, your servers, you know, on farm-raised oysters is a very good way to start practicing marketing. And, you know, one misconception about oyster farming is that um, people think that um, oyster farming is like other practices, like you're growing oysters in a pond. We grow our oysters in the bay just like the wild oysters. So the taste, the profile, everything's the same except the method of what we're doing. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Very exciting. And to my audience, you heard you heard it. So go support as much as you can. Um, David, thank you so much for joining us. It was great having you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Thanks again to our amazing guests, Ashford and David. If you're a seafood lover, I hope this episode inspired you to explore fresh, diverse options from the many and varied commercial fisheries. We will be back soon with the next installment of our Resilient and Sustainable Commercial Fisheries series. Until then, support local and check out all the other great podcasts at the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Special thanks to the Walton Family Foundation for supporting sustainable seafood and the production of this podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. As always, you can learn more about the National Working Waterfront Network at their website, nationalworkingwaterfronts.com.